Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you indeed for Jesus Christ. He is our great treasure. But Lord, you know, that is easy to say and not really mean. But you see everything. You see our hearts. You see the heart of every person in this room, everybody streaming online today. Oh Lord, give us the gift of hearing you speak today. Not just hearing your words explained, but being given ears to hear it. Said, Lord, that we will listen, we will heed, we will be changed for sanctification, for salvation. For your glory, God, please do this. Enable me to speak this word as you would want. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've perchance looked at the bulletin today, you may have noticed that the sermon title contains an oxymoron. Now, what's an oxymoron? It's not an insult. It's a language technique in which you combine two words of opposite meaning to make a new term. Think of phrases like freezer burn or living dead, deafening silence, old news. Do you hear how each of those phrases uses a pair of opposites? You might at first think that oxymorons are self-contradictory, but they are not. In fact, they are ways to memorably describe something by drawing upon what seems like two opposite meanings to make a new meaning. Now today, the oxymoron I'd like you to think about is religious unbelief. Religious unbelief. At first glance, that doesn't seem to make sense, maybe, because for something to be religious, that thing must relate to what people believe even what they believe about God, or what is the proper way to relate to God. Yet there is no real contradiction in these words, religious unbelief, not as I use them. Religious unbelief is the use of religion, even outwardly expressed love for God and obedience to God as a way to hide the heart's unbelief in God and even love for something else more than God. To speak more simply, outward religiosity and good works, good behavior, they often conceal a heart of unbelief. And I can testify to this personally. I grew up in a Christian household, and I was, by everyone's estimation, a good kid. I got straight A's in school, I was rarely disobedient to my parents. I memorized verses in Awana. I talked about Jesus to my friends. I frequently went out of my way to serve and be polite. For example, if there was a door to be held open, I was the one who held it. And as people passed by and said thank you, I said, you're welcome. And if they passed by and didn't say thank you, I still said, you're welcome. <laughs> I had made a profession of faith in Jesus by prayer when I was five. I was baptized around eight years old. So if you asked me in sixth grade, if I was a Christian who loved Jesus, I would have told you, yes. But there was something off about my religion. I didn't want to read the Bible. 
And I actually tried clever ways to get out of my family Bible study. If at any time I failed to measure up outwardly, like if I got a bad grade, I would cry. I would wail. And yet strangely, in other instances, I didn't feel bad at all. I didn't feel bad about laughing at dirty jokes or mocking my younger sister when my parents weren't around. Only later did I realize that though I grew up thinking that I loved God and was a Christian, what I really loved was myself and what being good could do for me. I loved being admired by my peers at school. I loved being praised by my parents and teachers. I loved getting rewards. I loved being thought of as the good kid because that's the way I thought of myself. This belief in myself as good was why I would get so devastated by my public failures. Not because I had displeased God and I was so broken up over that, but because in missing the mark before others, I had tarnished the image of myself as the good kid. And thus I risked losing their approval. Despite my outward appearance of true religion then, I was actually a proud, selfish, self-righteous boy who didn't really believe in Jesus according to God's saving gospel. I didn't realize this for a long time. But around seventh grade was when God finally opened my eyes to my own sinfulness. And I wasn't good. I wasn't righteous. But that Jesus is good and righteous and lovely, and I need him desperately. It's only then that I repented and believed in the gospel for real. And it was amazing how the Lord changed my heart and behavior. I started to want to study the Bible for myself, to know the Lord, not to look good in front of others. And I began to serve others, to please the Lord more than to please them. But what about you? Have you come out of a background of religious unbelief? Are you still there? Even as a true Christian, has a love for respect or the approval of others corrupted your walk? That we can hide our hearts from others and even deceive ourselves. We cannot hide from the Lord. So let's hear what our Lord has to say about religious unbelief in John chapter 5. Let's take your Bibles and turn there now. The sermon title for today is Jesus Exposes Religious Unbelief. Jesus Exposes Religious Unbelief. We're going to see this from John 5, verses 41 to 47. If you're using the Bibles that we provided, it's on page 1064. But I'll give you some additional context. We're going to read the same section that we read last time, starting from verse 30 down to verse 47. So let's hear John 5, verses 30 to 47, and we'll be focusing on verses 41 to 47 in the sermon today. We begin in verse 30. Jesus is speaking. I can do, <clears throat> I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? We are coming now to the end of John 5 and to the culmination of what began in the first verse of this chapter. According to John 5, 1 to 16, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the religious feasts and happened to heal a sick man by the pool of Bethesda, Bethesda on the Sabbath. This action brought on Jesus the condemnation of the Jewish religious leaders. They saw Jesus' actions as blatantly violating God's Sabbath, which was really just a violation according to the teaching and rules of the rabbis. But nevertheless, they concluded that Jesus is a lawbreaker who deserves the death penalty for violating the Sabbath. But Jesus responds by giving the true interpretation and application of his Sabbath healing. Namely, that Jesus is the Son of God, in whom all must believe to escape eternal condemnation. Verses 17 to 29, Jesus unmistakably declares his divine sonship, even that he and the Father are intimately united, and that the Father has given him the great works of life-giving and judgment, which the Son executes even now, and will execute in a greater way in the future. Then, in verses 30 to 40, which is where we were last time, Jesus presents the greatest testimony of his divine sonship, the testimony of God the Father. Verses 30 to 35, Jesus acknowledges his need to supply appropriate supporting testimony to the claims that Jesus is making. Having John the Baptist testify on Jesus' behalf is good and noteworthy, but Jesus must have a greater testimony if he really is the divine son who does everything alongside his father. This testimony, Jesus indeed does have. And in verses 36 to 40, Jesus summarizes how the Father himself testifies of the Son. The Father testifies, you might remember this from last time, through the Son's works, verse 36, through the Son's words, verses 37 to 38, 
and through the Old Testament scriptures, verses 39 to 40. Now, as we worked through verses 30 to 40 last week, we did note how even as Jesus acknowledges that he speaks as he does so that his listeners might believe and be saved, verse 34, Jesus also begins to reprove his Jewish listeners. These who say they love God, he reproves them for not heeding God's own testimony about the divine Son so that they might come to the Son in saving faith. You see that in verse 38 and there's verse 40. So the question naturally arises, why won't these supposedly religious, God-fearing, God-loving Jews believe? Why won't they believe in God's Son? This is an important question for Jesus to answer. Not only for Jesus' original audience, so that they might be convicted of their own sin and repent, but also for John's original audience. Remember, our author John writes this gospel primarily with Greek-speaking Jews in mind. Hellenistic Jews who don't live in Palestine. John is reporting to them select words and works of Jesus so that those Jews might believe in Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God and thereby obtain eternal life. That's John's purpose expressed in John 20, verses 30 to 31. John thus doesn't choose any details of the book to include arbitrarily. Even verses 41 to 47 from Jesus are included with that purpose in mind. John also wants the supposedly religious Jews to whom he writes to have their own proud unbelief exposed so that they might be made willing to turn and believe in Jesus. It's like John is saying to his audience, his Greek-speaking Jews, if you're having a hard time believing in and following Jesus, whatever you say the reason for that is, the real reasons are right here or at least part of the real reasons. What Jesus, and through him John, asserts is provocative to be sure. But it's meant to shake the listener-readers out of the self-righteous complacency in which they found themselves. So that they might find out whether the things that John and Jesus says are true. And of course, our triune God has a similar purpose for us this morning as we examine this passage together. In John 5, verses 41 to 47, Jesus exposes two fundamental realities of religious unbelief to convict you of your own self-righteous way and to move you to believe in Jesus. Is anyone here today religious but having a hard time believing or following Jesus Christ in a particular area? If so, let the Spirit of Jesus tell you what's really going on in your hearts. Even to expose these two fundamental realities of religious unbelief. The first fundamental reality of religious unbelief that Jesus exposes is in verses 41 to 44. This is the first point of the sermon outline. Number one, you seek men's approval over God's approval. If you are hesitant to believe and obey Jesus, even after hearing his word declared to you, it is because Jesus says, you seek men's approval over God's approval. 
This point starts in verse 41, where Jesus says, I do not receive glory from men. Now, you may notice that verse 41 seems like an untrue statement. (laughs) What are you talking about, Jesus? Weren't we just singing in this service about giving glory to Jesus? Are Are you saying you don't accept praise, honor, worship from men? Isn't that what you should accept if you are the Son of God, the divine Son as you really claim? Well, of course, Jesus does receive praise, honor, and worship from men. In fact, this is one of the Father's own goals for the Son, as we heard even in this passage, verse 23. So why does Jesus seem to flatly contradict that truth? Well, we can see what Jesus is really getting at here if we peek ahead and compare verses 44 and 41. In contrast to the Jews, whose ultimate goal was to receive glory from one another and not glory from God, And we should understand the term glory here to mean something like praise, honor, or approval. In contrast to these Jews, Jesus ultimately seeks glory from the Father and not from men. You see, Jesus doesn't fundamentally need man's praise or approval. If he has that, fine. But if he doesn't, that's also fine. Because whose commendation is the only one he really needs and in fact receives? It's the commendation of his Father, of God. This is why Jesus has been saying or doing surprising things so far in this gospel, often generating tepid belief, confusion, or outright hostility from his people, the Jews. Really, if Jesus were seeking the Jews' acceptance, praise, and approval, he would be failing miserably. But Jesus has said, and will say again in this gospel, He did not come to seek his own will, but the will of his Father. Therefore, Jesus says truly in verse 41, I do not receive glory from men. That is not what I'm after, ultimately. But what about the Jews? What about the Jewish religious leaders? Beginning at verse 42, Jesus says, But I know you. At this point in John's Gospel, we, the readers, have come to understand something unnerving about Jesus' knowledge. And what's that? Well, Jesus knows everything. He has supernatural knowledge. He doesn't need to ask questions. He doesn't need to do detective work to know all about you and all about what's in your heart. John's gospel has demonstrated repeatedly and has also recorded for us explicitly the reality Of John 2, 24 and 25. John 2, 24 to 25, it says that Jesus knows all men. And he doesn't need anyone to testify to him about man because he himself knows what is in man. Jesus is exercising again that supernatural knowledge here. He asserts that he fundamentally knows his Jewish opponents and even knows something specific about them. And what is this specific knowledge of Jesus about these Jews? Well, we get a clue with the transition word. Notice Jesus says, but. It's a contrasting transition word, right? Which means that Jesus is about to reveal something about the Jews and the Jewish leaders in particular that contrasts with what Jesus just said about himself. I do not receive, I do not seek the glory of men, but... As for you, 
Can you guess what Jesus is about to say? What he's implying? Now let's look at the rest of the verse. The rest of verse 42. Verse 42. But I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. Huh. That's maybe a little unexpected. We were perhaps thinking Jesus would say, but I know you, that you do receive, you do seek the glory of men. That's not what he says. Jesus says instead, you do not have the love of God in yourselves. Why this switch? Why this confusing switch? Well, this isn't so much a switch as it is a parallel description. To not have the love of God in yourselves is to seek the glory of men. It is to receive the glory of men. While to have the love of God in yourselves is not to seek, not to receive the glory of men. You see, to love God means you seek his will and approval above all else. Whereas not to love God means you don't care so much for God's approval. You seek men's approval over God's approval. So Jesus here is not simply revealing that the Jews, in contrast to Jesus, fundamentally seek and receive men's approval but that the reason they do so is because they fundamentally don't love God. They do not have the love of God that is the love for God in themselves. This is no idle accusation. This is the all-knowing son looking into their hearts and saying what's there. I know you, Jesus says. This is who you really are. You talk a great game about loving God. Seeking his will above all. But I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. You love men's approval. You crave men's affirmation and admiration to the point that you don't care so much about God's approval. Now, think again about to whom Jesus speaks. He's speaking to the Jews. This is the ostensibly pious chosen people of God. He's speaking to the rabbis of the Jews, the religious teachers, the scribes, the Pharisees. These are holy people to whom Jesus says this. Even the holiest among the holy people. This would be like going into a church or a pastor's conference today and saying to everyone, I know you all that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. That's very bold. That's very provocative. How can Jesus say this? Jesus, they say they love God, but you say you know they don't. How can that be? Well, Jesus does have that penetrating soul gaze. He is the divine son with supernatural knowledge, so that should be enough support right there. Nevertheless, Jesus does point to a basic but critical piece of evidence to establish this alarming assertion. Look at verse 43. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. To appreciate this statement from Jesus, we need to understand what it means to come in someone's name. If you've been following the news, you know that currently the U.S. is responding to various international crises, like the wars in Ukraine and in Israel. Our country, even our ruling presidential administration, 
are often sending representatives to these areas and to the powers involved to bring aid or to negotiate different diplomatic deals. These ambassadors are not going in their own names, that is, on their own behalf or under their own authority or seeking their own will. No, they go in the name of the United States, in the name of the government of the United States, to accomplish our ruler's will, our country's will. So it is in verse 43. Jesus says that he himself has come in the name of his Father. On his Father's behalf, with the Father's authority, seeking the Father's will. So if the Jews truly love God the Father, what should they do? Receive and believe in Jesus. But what do the Jews do? In fact, in response to Jesus, what do they do as a people, generally, on the whole? Jesus says, you all do not receive me. It's evident. You all do not receive me. The Father is with me. He testifies of me. I only seek his will, but you don't receive me. If you do not receive the one who comes in the name of the Father, it can only be because you do not have the love for the Father, the love of God in yourselves. Someone might say, well, maybe the Jews are just stubborn, and they, they won't accept anyone, any messenger, any teacher, any, any leader. They're just a stubborn people. Well, no, that cannot be it. Because Jesus goes on to point out that if another comes in his own name, that is, he comes on his own behalf, on his own authority, seeking his own will, what do the Jews do characteristically? They all receive that one. And it says, you will receive them. This is what you're going to keep on doing. So the issue is not receiving messengers or leaders. The issue is, receiving, is with receiving God's special messenger and leader. Even the Son, Jesus Christ. Why do the Jews only accept those who come in their own names? Jesus explains in verse 44 even while pointing out that this kind of hard-heartedness makes it impossible to believe in Jesus and be saved. Verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Note the key phrase in the middle of this verse. When you receive glory from one another. What does this phrase tell us? tells us why the Jews only accept leaders who come in their own name instead of God's name. It is because these leaders, in one way or another, give glory to the Jews, while the Jews respond by giving glory to that leader. You see, there were many leaders, even many pretend messiahs, who had presented themselves to the Jews in the years up to Jesus' coming, and then there were many who came after Jesus and claimed to be the Messiah or acted like Israel's Messiah. And many of these were accepted and supported to some extent by the Jews. What kind of message do you think these pseudo-Messiahs brought to the people? Do you think it was a message like Jesus's? You do not really love God. You need to repent from the heart in order to enter God's kingdom? No way! No way. What kind of message did these leaders bring? 
You guys are doing a great job. We just need to keep doing more of what we're doing. We need to keep on keeping the law of Moses so that we can get into that kingdom. And meanwhile, let's work to get rid of these evil Romans ruling over us. I've got a plan, guys. I've got a plan. I'm going to lead a rebellion. I'm going to free our nation from the ungodly influence of these evil Gentiles. In other words, those who came in their own names told the Jews what the Jews wanted to hear. They gave the Jews glory, approval, praise. And so the Jews responded accordingly, giving glory, approval, and praise, support to these pseudo-messiahs. Didn't the apostle Paul warn about the same thing in the church? 2 Timothy 4, Paul charges Timothy, I'm about to die. Make sure you preach the word in season and out of season, when it's popular, when it's not popular. Because the time is coming when people won't want to listen to the word of God anymore. But they will find for themselves teachers, leaders who will tickle their ears, who will say to them what they want to hear. And thereby they will turn aside from the truth to myths. This is common to the human condition. We like the leaders who tell us what we want to hear. They're the ones who get our approval. It may feel good to hear that you have the approval of your leader, your teacher. But what good is that? if you do not have the approval of the one and only God. And that description, by the way, is intriguing. One and only God. This is a rare description for God in the New Testament. Certainly, it's factually true. The Bible is quite clear that there are no other gods beside the true God. But why use this phrase here? Surely the answer must be to emphasize the contrast. Your human leaders, they're all the same. They come, they ask for your approval, they give you their approval, and then those leaders do their thing and they pass away. Leader after leader is doing this. They're coming, seeking your approval, you give them their approval. But what about the approval of the one and only God? The unchanging God? Your leaders are a dime a dozen, but what about God? The one and only God. Shouldn't his approval be more important? Notice now that verse 44 is a rhetorical question. In light of this exposed reality, this stated reality, Jesus asks, how can you believe? And you know what the implied answer is. You can't. Not as long as the approval of men is more important to you than the approval of God. It will be impossible for you to believe. Therefore, impossible for you to be saved. And this would have been a tough issue for John's original audience even those Hellenistic Jews, because they faced severe persecution and social ostracization, ostracization for believing in Jesus, as many Jews do today. If you confess Jesus, it's like you're turning your back on us Jews. We don't want anything to do with you anymore. We might even try to kill you. And it was a big question of whether they were going to seek God's approval or man's approval. But what about us? 
What about all of you listening today? Has the desire for people's praise, approval, attention become more important to you than God's praise, approval, or attention? Unlike Jesus, who came in his Father's name, have you come in your own name, willing to give praise and approval to those who give you praise and approval? Because that serves your purposes. You only give God's praise and approval second thought. Oh, if I can get that, that'd be nice, but that's not essential. Now, perhaps you say to yourself, I don't think I love men's approval more than God's, but how will I know for sure? That's a good question. Certainly, Jesus gives one very basic way to check. Do you receive him as the Christ and the Son of God? Is he your Savior and Lord, and are you living your life accordingly? Have you committed your life to following Jesus? Do you actually obey him? Because if the answer is no, then Jesus has exposed your heart. You love the approval of men more than the approval of God. But here's another way to check. Consider how you respond to men's approval or the lack thereof. When someone or a group of people doesn't give you glory or looks like they might not, does that make you anxious? Angry? Depressed? That is, hopeless? If so, these are signs that you love the approval of men more than the approval of God. And by the way, should someone say, oh, I don't care what people think. I'm a straight shooter. I tell it like it is, whatever the consequences. People don't like it, that's their problem. And let me just tell you that that very likely is just a different kind of pride, a different kind of selfishness that ironically glories in not seeking man's glory and uses truthfulness as an excuse to bludgeon people rather than build them up. Did you know, brethren, that for the sake of the gospel, you should care to a certain extent about what other people think? What other people think about you? You should give them no just reason to blame or reproach you. After all, this is one of the qualifications for elders in the Bible. Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, they say this is supposed to be a man above reproach, even one who has a good reputation with those outside the church. So to a certain extent, you should care what other people think, but pleasing others must always come secondary to pleasing God if you are a true Christian. Consider Paul's own example Paul says on the one hand in 1 Corinthians 10.33, 1 Corinthians 10.33, that he seeks to, quote, please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many so that they may be saved. If there's anything I can do to remove hindrances to people in terms of their listening to me, liking me, I'll do it so that they can be saved. However, Paul says, on the other hand, in Galatians 1.10, Galatians 1.10, 
For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still striving to please men, I'm sorry, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. It's the same attitude as Jesus, right? I do not receive the glory of men. That is not what I'm ultimately after. Paul said the same. We read earlier Matthew 6. And you may notice that section about doing your righteous deeds before others. It ends somewhat curiously with the statement, no man can serve two masters. It mentions God and wealth. But really, these things are tied together. The approval of others. It often brings you worldly wealth, and it is a kind of wealth in itself. But Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. You're either going to devote yourself to one or to the other. Will it be the approval of men on earth, which is a passing treasure? Or will it be the approval of God in heaven? It provides treasure that never fades. This is the first fundamental reality that Jesus exposes in religious unbelief. Those caught up in religious unbelief seek the approval of men over the approval of God. The second fundamental reality appears in verses 45 to 47, and it's the final verses of our chapter. Look at our second point, number two. You don't believe the scriptures you study. If you are a religious person, but you hold back from believing in Jesus or from giving your full obedience to him from the heart, then this is proof that you do not believe the scriptures that you otherwise study and say that you value. Your actions prove you don't believe the scriptures. Look at verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you have set your hope. Verse 45 is a little surprising. Why does Jesus suddenly bring up Moses? Well, remember to whom Jesus is speaking. He's speaking to religious Jews who not only claim to value God's Old Testament scriptures generally, but to have a particular reverence for Moses and for the law of Moses, that is, the five books which we sometimes call the Pentateuch, but which the Jews call the Torah. Every good Jew, both back then and today, is really a disciple of Moses, and therefore a student, a dedicated student of the Torah. Jews are taught to believe that there is life in studying and keeping Torah. You have to know the law of God as expressed in these foundational books, and you need to put the law into practice. If you do, you will have life. And does not God himself say this? By the hand of Moses in the Torah. Leviticus 18.5. This is just one version of it. It's expressed in different places. But Leviticus 18.5, God says, So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, God says. The Jews knew about this verse. They knew about this concept. So the Jews of Jesus' day loved Moses, and they were devoted to the Torah. Therefore, as a final prod to these religious unbelievers, Jesus asserts something shocking to them. He says, essentially, 
I've declared my role as life-giver and judge in accordance with the will of the Father. But I tell you, I won't be the one accusing you to the Father regarding your unbelief and disobedience. There's another who will do it for me. I tell you, it is Moses. It is Moses instead, the very prophet you so love and to whom you devote yourself in your life. He is the one accusing you and providing the evidence of your own damning unbelief. Now that would have set off alarm bells for the Jews. That is an extremely alarming claim. That'd be like telling the Lutherans, Martin Luther is condemning you all right now. Or telling Roman Catholics, St. Peter is condemning you all right now. And do note the verb tense of Jesus' assertion. Jesus doesn't say, the one who will accuse you, but instead the one who accuses you. This is a present participle in the original Greek. Literally, the one accusing you all is Moses. It's present. It's continual. It's a characteristic action. Accusation doesn't have to wait until the future. It's happening right now, over and over again. But how can Jesus say this? Do not the Jews steady Moses and the law diligently? Are the Jews not zealous for Moses' law, as shown by their condemnation even of Jesus' Sabbath healing? How can Moses condemn them? Verse 46. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Jesus explains here why Moses can rightly be said to accusing all religious Jews of unbelief. Moses wrote about Jesus. So if the Jews had believed Moses, they would have believed Jesus. But as is evident, the Jews, in fact, do not believe in Jesus. This proves that the Jews really never believed Moses. Despite all the nice words the Jews might say about Moses in his writings, despite the study they devote to his books, if they don't believe Jesus, it means they didn't believe Moses. Thus, Moses justly accuses them of unbelief. But wait a second. Did Moses really write about Jesus in a significant way? Absolutely. (laughs) Actually, after the resurrection, it was the joy of Jesus, the apostles, and many other Christians to prove to the Jews from the Torah, from the prophets, from the other Old Testament writings, the truth about Jesus. It was showing, using all the scriptures, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him and only him there is life. Many books of the New Testament explain how passages from Moses, concepts from Moses, connect to Jesus, connect to the gospel. Here in verse 46, we don't see Jesus cite or explain any specific passages from Moses' five books, but certainly they're there. And just to give you a brief overview, a snapshot, let me just mention first some messianic prophecies from Moses. Genesis 3.15, in which God promises victory from the seed of the woman over the seed of the serpent and the serpent himself. He will bruise the seed of the woman's heel, but that seed will crush the serpent's head. Genesis 12.3 promises blessing to all the families of the earth through Abraham's seed. Yes, even the Gentiles will be blessed through Abraham's seed. Genesis 49.10 promises widespread dominion to the seed of Judah. 
Numbers 24, 17, and 19 promises widespread dominion to a future ruler of Israel, future king. Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 to 19 promises the coming of a final authoritative prophet like Moses. And we can add to this the repeated presentation of New Testament gospel realities throughout the law of Moses, such as salvation and blessing comes according to God's gracious promise through faith, not physical lineage or good works. And the greatest example of this, quoted many times in the New Testament, is Genesis 15:6, the description of Abraham in which it says, Then he, Abram, believed in the Lord, that is Yahweh, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. You cannot say that the law of Moses teaches salvation by works when that verse is standing right in the middle of it. But then you can just compare the experience of the patriarchs and of the Israelites, many of whom, many within their physical lineage, were passed over in receiving the promised inheritance while others received it who, by human rights, human means, shouldn't have. Like when Jacob received the inheritance instead of Esau, or Joseph was given the greatest portion among his brothers, or how the first generation after the exodus of Israel, none of them, except for Caleb and Joshua, went into the promised land, though they were all descendants of Abraham. God's salvation and blessing comes according to God's gracious promise through faith, not physical lineage or good works. That's just one of the realities. We also see from Moses. Moses writes, he makes clear the need for man to receive forgiveness for sin via a blameless substitutionary sacrifice because man inevitably falls short of a holy God's perfect standard. Think, even in the first chapters of the Bible, how the Lord had to provide the animal skins to cover Adam and Eve. Genesis 3.21. Think of how a ram substitute was necessary so that Isaac, the son of promise, would not be sacrificed by Abraham. It was this ram instead. Genesis 22:13. God provided the ram. Or just think of the entire sacrificial system as it was delivered to Israel. The Passover lamb, the sin offering, the burnt offering, the day of atonement. All of these showing you are a sinful people, an unclean people who need atonement before God. You need forgiveness from God. You need cleansing from God. Even the sacrificial system, though, by the fact that it was ongoing and repeated and it never provided a once-and-for-all cleansing, showed, and the writers of the New Testament bring this out, that something better needed to come, something to fulfill what only these things could picture. Moses was writing that. Moses was communicating that. Another gospel reality we see from Moses is the need for God to regenerate the hearts of people to believe and be saved. You might say, well, yeah, Moses talks about, when he talks about Abraham, talks about faith, and talks about the need for obedience, and this is all something that we can do on our own. No, Moses actually says that this too must come from God. Listen to two verses, Deuteronomy 29.4. Deuteronomy 29.4. Moses tells the Israelites, Yet to this day, Yahweh has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. You're going into the promised land, but I tell you, you don't have hearts that have been made new by God to love him. 
But then just one chapter later, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Moreover, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. You only may live if you love God, but you don't have a heart right now that will do that. But one day God will give you that heart as a nation and your descendants will have it too. God must do it. And are these not the very same gospel realities that Jesus preaches even in the gospel of John? Was that not what we saw in the conversation of Jesus and Nicodemus? And Nicodemus is like, I don't know what you're talking about. But Jesus says, you should know. How can you be the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? These are the basics. Didn't Moses teach you that? Of course, there's more than this in the Torah. Jesus says the same things, but in a fuller and even more glorious way. See, Moses not only foretold Jesus' coming, but ultimately preached the same gospel that Jesus did. His whole book is clamoring for the Messiah, who is Jesus. I mean, how can you read the law of Moses, all those rules, all the requirements, and say, we can do this. We're going to work our way in. No, it is as the apostles say, in line with Jesus, this was a tutor to lead you to Christ, to point you to Christ. You can't keep this law. You can't be good enough for God. You not only need temporary covering, you need permanent covering, and even God to change your hearts. Moses was preaching this. He was writing this. Thus, to believe Moses, to believe what he wrote, should logically lead to believing in Jesus. To reject Jesus in spite of what Moses wrote, or even worse, to reject Jesus because of what Moses wrote, which is what the Jews were saying they were doing. Hey, he violates the Sabbath. Moses said, don't do that. You've got to get rid of Jesus. To reject Jesus in such a way is to fundamentally misunderstand and not believe Moses at all. And this is the great stumbling block. This is one of the great stumbling blocks of the Jews in Jesus' time and in the present day. You see, the Jews, unfortunately, do not steady Moses. Those who are committed to the study of Torah today they don't study Torah itself, usually. They study the commentaries on Torah. They study the words of the rabbis who are commenting on Moses, meaning they only look at Moses through a layer of religious tradition, the rabbinical tradition. Thus, the Moses they follow is not the Moses of Scripture, not who Moses really was. It's the Moses of Talmud, Moses of the collection of rabbinical writings. In other words, for the Jews, Moses has been made a teacher to confirm what they already want to believe. And of course, the Jews aren't alone in that. Doesn't the same thing appear in the Christian sector? 
various forms of Christianity, so hampered by religious tradition that you can only study the Bible through that tradition, or else you're going to go off wrong. We can't let you do that. You've got to listen to us. We have the tradition that it's the only way you can understand the Bible. Same thing. I tell you, religious tradition can be such a prison for the soul. Trapping religious people into thinking they love God and faithfully follow his word when they really only follow man. Thus Jesus, by the startling declaration about Moses being the very one who was accusing you, is attempting to break through that prison, to initiate a jailbreak, to get the Jews to ask themselves if they've really understood Moses and they've really believed what he said. They think they have. He says they haven't. Jesus says they haven't, and he has the testimony of the Father to back him up. So if a Jew really loves God, what should he do at such an assertion from Jesus? He should do what the noble Bereans did in Acts 17.11. They daily examined the scriptures themselves to see if these things were so. If you're a religious person, but you have problems with the claims of Jesus, with the commands of Jesus, go back to the scriptures and see if these things are so. Not through the layer of religious tradition, just go to the scriptures and look at it yourself. See if this is true. An unwillingness to investigate or to see anything in the scriptures beyond what your man-made tradition is already communicating to you That's a fundamental barrier to believing in Jesus. And as Jesus himself acknowledges in our final verse, verse 47, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Another rhetorical question with an implied answer. If the Jews refuse to believe what Moses wrote for the sake of their own self-righteousness, their own tradition, they will never believe in Jesus. How could they? He contradicts their tradition even more so than Moses did. So if they won't believe Moses, they'll never believe Jesus. Altogether, verses 45 to 47 represent a sharp challenge to the Jews of Jesus and John's days as to why they refused to believe in and follow Jesus. Do God's scriptures really lead away from Jesus' claims? Or do they in fact lead to Jesus and hardly confirm Jesus as the Christ and Son of God? Jesus tells us the answer, but do you believe him? I expect that all of you here today will consider yourself, to some degree or another, to be a religious person. You're here in church, listening to the Word of God being preached. But what kind of religious person are you? Could you also have fallen into the trap of religious unbelief? Do you claim to love the scriptures? Do you claim to be disciples of Paul, Peter, John, even Jesus? Do you claim all this you don't believe their words and you don't do them. You don't put them into practice. If that's true, then I've got to tell you, you are at risk of the very writers of scriptures, even Jesus himself, standing up 
and they're accusing you right now regarding your wicked unbelief. Presenting that before the Father and say, I'm here to give testimony. That person doesn't love you. Remember what James says. James says in the beginning of his book, James 1.22, Reprove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. He adds a few verses later, James 1.26, If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. My brethren, do your lives show that you believe the scriptures you study? It's not good enough to know and talk about scripture. Do your lives show that you believe it? Now again, someone might ask, Pastor Dave, I think my life shows that I believe the scriptures, but how can I know for sure? Again, great question. And again, we can point to a basic check from Jesus himself. First, do you believe in and follow Jesus as the Christ and Son of God? Because if you haven't done that, you haven't believed the Old or the New Testaments. But second, are you a meaningful member of a faithful community of Bible interpreters? who are holding you accountable to an accurate understanding of the Bible and of a faithful living out of the Bible. No, that was a bunch of different words. Let me say that again. Are you a meaningful part of a faithful community of Bible interpreters who are holding you accountable to an accurate understanding of the Bible faithfully lived out? I've said this to you before, but I need to say it again. Something I've tragically observed as a Christian more than once is when a man or a woman becomes so convinced of his own interpretation of the Bible or application of the Bible that he becomes unteachable. Will not listen. Cannot be corrected. Everyone around him or her can see the error and the destructive effect the error is having on that person's life, but he or she will not listen. Functionally and sometimes physically, that person withdraws from the fellowship. And of such a person, their Proverbs prove true. Proverbs 18.1, Proverbs 18.1, He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. And Proverbs 26.12, Proverbs 26.12, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. The Jews thought they were wiser than the Son of God. What about you? has a certain beloved teacher, has your own experiences or feelings, has a certain religious tradition, colored, changed the way you view the Bible so that you no longer actually see or believe what God himself says. Say, I know the Bible says that, but that can't be right. Not based on what I've experienced. If you find yourself being in that kind of situation, you've got to do what the Bereans did. 
had to go back to the scriptures with that faithful community, people who actually love the Bible and know how to study it. Go back to the scriptures with that faithful community and discover together what the Bible really says and hold each other accountable to it. That's what we do. That's what we should be doing here as a body, as a church. That's what it means to be a church. Examine these scriptures daily as a faithful community. And with that, we come to the end of this whole section of John 5, verses 1 to 47. I think we did four messages on this, or maybe it was a little bit more. This large section has contained various challenges regarding whether we hold to dead religious tradition and self-righteousness, or whether we hold to life in God's Son, Jesus of Nazareth. Which is it for you? I tell you as an encouragement, Jesus is so eager that you find life in him. He's not apathetic towards you. He's not indifferent to whether you believe. He is a loving, saving God. He wants you to believe. He wants you to turn and believe. What does he say to the Jews? Even Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Who stones the prophets, kills those sent to her. How I have longed. I have desired. I have been so much wanting to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. But you weren't willing. Oh, brethren, be willing. Jesus today wants to gather you into his brood. Stop claiming to be righteous before him when you're not. And you can receive his righteousness. Stop claiming to love God when you don't, and your life shows that. And you can love God for real. And you can experience God's love for you. As brothers and sisters here, this is the reality that we confess is true of us. May it be true of us, and may it be true in an even fuller way. As we do live as a faithful community of Bible interpreters, encouraging one another, spurring each other on, admonishing one another so we can know Jesus more, make him known more, and enjoy him until we see him in the fullness of his coming. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, your wisdom is so right. How often you say in different ways in the Bible, the proud man will be humbled, but the humble man will be exalted. The one who holds to his own righteousness will be proved the utmost sinner, but the one who confesses his sin and comes to you, he's the one who's clothed with your own righteousness and made acceptable to you. Oh, Lord, I pray that pride, religious tradition, fleshly beliefs about our own goodness, that these would not become the traps that keep people away from you today, that keep souls away from being saved and that leave them in death and darkness. And I pray for anyone who does not yet truly know and love Jesus that they would today, that they would give their hearts over to you. And for, Lord, those who do love Jesus, but need greater sanctification. And that's all of us. I pray that you'd provide it. 
that you'd show us the sin that is entangling us, even the self-righteousness and the love of others' approval, Lord, that is hampering us. And we'd cast these off, we'd tear these off and say, I want Jesus' approval. Yes, I'd love it if other people approved me, but if I don't have that, I'm okay, because all I want is Jesus. If I have his commendation, by grace, certainly not on my own merit, if I have his commendation, nothing else matters. And I pray that we would have that kind of contentment, that kind of sufficiency in Christ so that whatever trials you bring us through, whatever provocations other peoples bring to us, we would stand firm. Deliver us from the evil one. And bring us safely into your heavenly kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.